Let us begin. In the name of the Father, and the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask your blessing on us today and our efforts to understand chapters 11 through 15. Uh, there's a lot of repetition, I know, in this lesson, but we have to understand that repetition was one of the uh, characteristics of Jewish writing at this early time, because it was the only way to emphasize the importance of the message contained therein. <clears throat> so that message applies to us today just as well as it did uh, 3,000 years ago. So we thank you for this time together, and we ask your blessing on our efforts to open our minds and our hearts to hear what it is you want us to hear. We praise you and thank you in all things, in Jesus' name. Chapter 11 is sort of a transitional chapter, because it leads up to chapters 12 through 26, not that we'll cover all of that today, but chapters 12 through 26 represent what the early Deuteronomists called the Book of the Law. And if you've read uh, the latter part of the second book of Kings, this is the part that was found in the temple in Jerusalem 150 years later. And it was brought to King Josiah, who uh, took it seriously and tried to implement the laws and get the people sort of rejuvenated into following their faith. Unfortunately, uh, he was assassinated by one of his family members, unfortunately, uh, over jealousy and the unwillingness to change uh, their wayward way of life. So, this is the most interesting part of the book of Deuteronomy. And there is a great deal of repetition from the books of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. But what you have to remember is that there is a commentary with each of these. And there are things that are mentioned in this book, Deuteronomy, that didn't exist at the time of Moses. And that is what makes this book different and somewhat unique from the other three that I just mentioned, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, because those are histories. Those are histories of the time, particularly of Moses and the early days of Judaism. This book was written uh, many, many years later for a different purpose, as I've said over and over, and I hope you've gotten that message. <clears throat> and what we're going to do now is to begin to get into uh, the real thick of this particular book. But listen to the commentaries uh, or comments that are meant here for the benefit of the people of the later time period, that is the 9th and the 8th century uh, BC. 
So if you'll follow me along in your Bibles here, beginning with chapter 11. 11 is reminding the people of the many wonders of God and the love of God shown through those wonders. It says, love the Lord your God, therefore, and always heed his charge, his statutes, his decrees and commandments. It is not your children who have not shown it, from, <clears throat> who have not known it from experience, but you yourselves who must now understand the discipline of the Lord your God, his majesty, his strong hand and outstretched arm, the signs and deeds he wrought among the Egyptians on Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and on all of his land. What he did to the Egyptian army and to their horses and chariots, engulfing them in the water of the Red Sea. They pursued you and bringing ruin upon them even to this day, ruin upon the Egyptians. Remember, as I've said before, any country that has uh, overcome Jerusalem in any way, shape, or form has never been and never will be a major global power. And that is one way God is sort of punishing those people for uh, obstructing his way of developing his plan of salvation. That's one thing we constantly must keep in mind. God's plan of salvation is going to be accomplished whether we like it or not. And he's going to do it in a loving way, but particularly in the early days, punishment by various means was the only way he could really get their attention. So let us go on. <clears throat> what he did for you in the desert until you arrived in this place, and what he did to the Reubenites, Danson, and Abraham, and names I can't pronounce here. Uh, those are interesting stories if you want to go to the book of Hebrew, no, the book of Numbers, <clears throat> around chapter 16. Uh, these two fellows, uh, Dathan and Abraham, and their sons and their whole families, because they disagreed with Moses and rebelled against them and tried to develop uh, people to turn against him, they were swallowed up. Moses prayed to God about it, and God told Moses to let them gather together as a group, and the earth opened up and swallowed them, locked back, and whatever, okay? Um, it's an interesting story, not really pertinent to the one today, but we have a lot of these little uh, side comments here. When the ground opened up and its mouth swallowed them out of the midst of Israel, and with their families and tents and everything that belonged to them, with their own eyes, you have, with your own eyes, you have seen all of these great deeds that the Lord has done. Keep all the commandments then, which I enjoin on you today, 
that you may be strong enough to enter in and take possession of the land into which you are crossing. Remember, this is a letter that the Deuteronomists have written in the 9th or 8th century BC, reminding the people of that time period of the goodness of God, but yet God was going to be obeyed or the people would be punished. And the point is that the Deuteronomists are trying to get the people of the 9th and 8th century to do the same thing. Keep in mind, because that's what's behind all of this. For the land which you are to enter and occupy is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you would sow your seed and then uh, water it by hand. Elizabeth, are you here? Elizabeth Johnson? So she brought up that question last week, if you recall, the fact that in the present day, uh, the land surrounding Jerusalem in Israel isn't much different than the land of Egypt. And I have to agree with that. I've been to both places. So, uh, and this is somewhat of an explanation here. The land and the vegetation in Egypt had to be uh, acquired and uh, used very carefully by the sweat of the slaves of the Israelites at that time by having to water the gardens by hand. Yes, the Nile overflowed, but there was no way to um, capture that water as there is today with irrigation systems. And so they had to take the water from uh, the Nile area and carry it into the various gardens by hand, by buckets, of, uh, and water the gardens there by hand. Now, what is saying here is that in Egypt, I mean, sorry, in Israel, uh, God is going to allow the rains to do all of that for them. And therefore, the land in Israel will be much easier to uh, plant and develop uh, gardens and uh, so forth. If you then truly heed my commandments, which I enjoin on you today, loving and serving your Lord God with all your heart and all your soul, I will give you the seasonal rain to your land, the early rain and the late rain, that you may have your grain, wine, and oil to gather in, and I will bring forth grass in the fields for your animals. Thus you may eat your fill, but be careful, lest your heart be so lured away that you serve other gods and worship them. Now, Moses didn't say that anywhere, because there weren't any gods. The Egyptians knew, I mean, sorry, the Israelites knew at the time of Moses that there was only one God, and they obeyed him to the best of their knowledge without any great formalities. In this case here, the people of the ninth and eighth centuries were going off and worshiping and building temples and altars and so forth 
to pagan gods to profaning uh, the belief of the one true God. And that is what he is talking about here. For then the wrath of the Lord will flare up against you, and he will close up the heavens so that no rain will fall, and the soil will not yield its crops. When did that actually happen at this later time period? Anyone know? At the time of Elijah, if you read uh, the first book of Kings and the story of Elijah and Elisha, you have the same thing. Elijah, according to the stories, uh, obeyed the teachings of God and prayed that the rain would be uh, stopped for three and a half years, and it did. And, of course, that was part of punishment at that time. Down to 18, verse 18 here. Rewards for fidelity. And therefore, take these words of mine into your heart and soul. Bind them at your wrist as a sign, and let them be a pendant on your forehead. Teach them to your children, speaking of them at home and abroad, whether you are busy or at rest, and write them on the doorposts of your houses and on your gates. Remember, we mentioned this, I believe, last week. That is what the mezuzah is on Jewish uh, door frames today. And that's uh, only really followed by the very orthodox Jews of, of uh, today. <clears throat> so that you're, so that as long as uh, the heavens are above, and you are, and your children may live on the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, he would give them. For if you are careful to observe all of these commandments, I enjoin on you, loving the Lord your God, and following his ways exactly, and holding fast to him, the Lord will drive out all of these nations out of your way, and you will dispossess the nations greater and mightier than yourselves. Every place where you set foot shall be yours, from the desert, from uh, from the desert, from Lebanon, from the Euphrates River to the Western Sea. From the Euphrates River, that would be from um, where Iraq is today, all the way to the Mediterranean Sea, all the way across what is now. Uh, Syria and part of southern uh, Turkey. And that is why the Jewish people have always said that that land, which is now the land we describe as Israel, uh, belongs to them and not to anyone else. Well, yeah, but then the uh, Palestinians or the uh, Islamic people say, well, no, it belongs to them because uh, by inheritance of Jewish law as well as Islamic law, the firstborn son was to inherit everything when the uh, father uh, of the tribe died. And therefore, uh, Ishmael was actually the firstborn son of Abraham. Well, it gets into all of that kind of 
uh, stuff and um, you know yeah that is true but then God uh, disowned uh, Ishmael and gave him a certain part of land for his himself which was described earlier and so forth uh, I don't want to get into all of those details but uh, you know there's sort of a margin of understanding uh, on both sides <laughs> excuse me at verse 26 it says I set before you here this day a blessing and a curse a blessing for obeying the commandments of the Lord your God which I enjoin on you today or a curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God but turn aside from the way I ordain for you today to follow your own designs and your own gods whom you have not known well aren't we doing the same thing today you know in the 21st century we have turned away from the normal practices of honoring God particularly on Sunday where everything is open just like any other day uh, I think most of us remember the what they used to call the blue laws where most businesses except for drugstores and restaurants were open on Sunday but very little else some entertainment movies etc uh, but we observe laws primarily by uh, going to church on Sunday well a lot of people have just you know Sunday is just another day and I remember hearing one person say that she hated Sundays because she didn't like uh, all of the changes that have come about well unfortunately a day was set apart to worship the Lord and we should be grateful for that <clears throat> But I think it's important that this book not be just thought of as something applying uh, to the people of the 9th and 8th century or even down to the 6th century, which it did. Uh, but it applies to us today just as well. Now, chapter 12 begins, as I've said before, uh, what was formerly called the Book of the Law, the central part of the book of Deuteronomy. This is the part that was taken to Babylon and uh, studied there and began or was the basis for the beginning of the synagogue system of houses of uh, study and prayer. Not worship, study and prayer. And this is why it was not worship here, chapter 12. The law requiring the centralization of Israel's sacrificial worship is unique to, and I'm reading a commentary, and I'm not reading the scripture, okay? The law requiring the centralization of Israel's sacrifice, sacrificial worship is unique to Deuteronomy and the literature that depended upon it. Previous legislation and practice envisioned such worship as taking place at any number of altars throughout the land. 
Deuteronomy's departure from earlier usage is based on a concern for purity in Israel's cult and on the belief that a multiplicity of sanctuaries is incompatible with the worship of Israel's God, the one true God. The whole idea of centralization didn't come into play in Judaism until the time of King David. He was the one that uh, decreed that the only sacrifice could be in the temple in Jerusalem. And of course, we're talking about the 11th century BC, even long before Deuteronomy was written. But it never really took hold until this time. And uh, further, it never really took hold uh, until the Babylonian, I mean, the Israelites uh, returned from Babylon to Israel in the latter part of the 6th century. So this is something that Moses would never have known about, the centralization. Remember, at the time of Moses, there was no formality in Judaism. Judaism was not an official religion at that time. It was a culture and a cult, not defined in any way. They did not have any uh, written creed, they didn't, still don't for that matter, but they did not have any uh, written uh, descriptions of what they believed in. That didn't take place until much, much later. <coughs> Let us begin reading chapter 12 here. These are the statutes and decrees which you must be careful to observe in the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to occupy as long as you live on its soil. Destroy without fail every place on the high mountains, on the hills, and under leafy trees where nations you are to possess worship their gods. Now, again, the Deuteronomists are putting this in the mouth of Moses, but he's, they're speaking to the people of their day, that is the 9th and 8th century B.C., not to the time of Moses. And the people at that time were worshiping these other gods and building altars and uh, various shrines, etc., uh, to these pagan gods on many different locations. And so the Deuteronomists are trying to get them to forego that, leave those things behind, and stick to the laws that were begun by King David and followed by Solomon and the people from Jerusalem. But there was a, a lot of tension between Jerusalem and the people of the northern kingdom, and they didn't uh, obey them whatsoever. In fact, uh, most of the Deuteronomists were killed by their own people as was the uh, prophets. And we'll get into the prophets in a few minutes here. That is not how you are to, that is not how you are to worship the Lord. That is, with all of these little sacred uh, 
places of worshiping the pagan gods. Jerusalem was the only place to worship. Uh, of course, the Deuteronomists do not speak of the uh, synagogue system because it didn't exist until the uh, latter part of the 6th century. Again, that is not how you are to worship the Lord your God. Instead, you shall resort to the place which the Lord your God chooses out of all your tribes and designates as his dwelling. And there you shall bring your holocausts and sacrifices. He's referring to Jerusalem, but he can't mention that because he's putting this in the mouth of Moses, which went way back uh, several hundred years before. And Moses didn't even know about Jerusalem at that time. There too, before the Lord your God, you and your family shall eat and make merry over all of your undertakings because the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not do as we are now doing. Here everyone does what he seems right uh, to himself. In other words, they were just wishy-washy and did whatever they thought was good, and what they didn't or didn't want to do, they didn't. Well, Judaism didn't have any formalities for many, many centuries. And this is what the Deuteronomists are trying to get the people to see. But after you have crossed the Jordan and dwell in the land which the Lord your God is giving you as a heritage, when he has given you rest from all of your enemies around you and you live in security, then uh, to the place which the Lord your God chooses as the dwelling place for his name, you shall bring all of your offerings. Again, this is Jerusalem that he's referring to. And I command you, your holocausts and sacrifices, your tithes and personal uh, contributions and every special offering uh, you have vowed to the Lord. You shall make merry before the Lord your God with your sons and daughters and your male and female slaves as well as with the Levite who belongs to your community but has no share of his own in your heritage. Now let me stop and explain. The Levite was one of the 12 tribes, but it was designated that the Levites would not have a share of uh, land as all of the other tribes did, simply because they were to live among all of the other tribes as sort of uh, the priest or the person that was to lead all the religious services. And that was something that went on all the way uh, from the time of Joshua crossing the uh, Jordan into the Promised Land for the first time up until the Babylonian captivity. So we're, we're talking uh, a period of almost a thousand years. Okay. But keep in mind, the Levites were not uh, to receive the land. So if you take 12 tribes minus the Levites, uh, you have 11. Well, remember, uh, we mentioned this uh, once or twice before. Uh, 
jo Joseph did not get any land assigned to him by name either because he married outside uh, of the Jewish community. Uh, he married uh, an Egyptian woman and had two sons. So what they did was to come back to the number 12 is they gave uh, the two sons uh, a plot of land to uh, replace Joseph. So you have 12 minus Levites minus Joseph, but you bring back Joseph's two sons, brings it back to 12. And the two sons were Ephraim and Manasseh, and they both turned out pretty bad dudes. Excuse me. Let's drop down to uh, verse 15. However, in any of your communities, you may, oh, I think we already covered that part of it. All right. Let's go on. Let's go over to verse uh, 20. After the Lord your God has enlarged your territory as he promised, when you wish meat for food, you may eat it at will, to your heart's desire. And if the place which the Lord your God chooses for the abode of his name is too far, you may slaughter in the manner I have told you. And uh, any of your herd or flock that the Lord has given you, and eat it to your heart's desire. What he's talking about here is remember that part of Jewish law, after it really got established, was that all the slaughtering of animals had to be brought to the temple. Well, for people that lived way up in Galilee and so forth, that was an imposition because that was, you know, 85 or more miles, which had to be accomplished by horse or walking. And by that time, the food would be spoiled. Um, so that wasn't uh, practical. So they're being given permission to have the local Levites bless the food at their local home rather than traveling all the way to uh, Jerusalem. Right. But they can't mention it or explain it that way because... If this is being said by Moses, Moses didn't know anything about Jerusalem at that time. Okay. Does that make sense? Well, I hope so. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. But make sure that you do not partake of the blood, for blood is life, and you shall not consume this seed of life, with the flesh. Do not partake of the blood. Therefore, pour it out on the ground like water. Now, some cultures do use blood and mix it with food and uh, so forth, like sausage. There is blood sausage still available some places. Uh, what the Jewish people are told to do here is that and this is one of Moses' dietary laws of not eating um, meat 
still with blood in it. And that is because it's blood will carry the life, but blood also carries disease. So it was more of a health or hygiene practice than anything else. Unfortunately, over a period of time, it sort of morphed into a belief that if you ate the blood of the of any animal, you would become like that animal. Because the life of the animal is in the blood. You see, and in their primitive ideas and understandings of health and so forth, this gradually changed from uh, a pure hygiene law or, or a religious law into sort of a superstition that if you ate the blood of an animal with the flesh of that animal, you would become like that animal. Today we think that's kind of silly, uh, but at that particular time, you know, there was very little known about hygiene and how the body functions and so forth. And, you know, it kind of uh, made sense for them to think that. Okay. <laughs> Abstain from it, that is the blood, that you and your children after you may prosper for doing what is right in the sight of the Lord. However, any sacred gifts or votive offerings that you may have, you shall bring with you to the place where the Lord chooses. And these you must offer both the flesh and the blood of your holocaust on the altar of the Lord, your God, and and of your other sacrifices. The blood indeed must be poured out uh, against the altar of the Lord. Can you imagine what that altar must have looked like after a while? But remember, the altar of sacrifice, even at the temple in Jerusalem, was outside, not inside the temple. A lot of people think, you know, I've been asked, how could they stand all of that stench and so forth inside the temple? Well, the sacrifices didn't take place inside. It was outside the temple. Okay. See, I lost my place, but that's not unusual. And there you must offer both the flesh and the blood of your holocaust on the altar of the Lord your God. Of your other sacrifices, the blood indeed must be poured out against the altar of the Lord, but their flesh may be eaten. Remember also that when large numbers of animals were being sacrificed for whatever purpose, it was different kinds of sacrifices. Not all of the flesh of that animal was destroyed. The majority of it was given to the people, first to the priest, and then to the other people for eating. So it wasn't wasted as we would think. But I'm sure that there was still a lot of waste because uh, they talk about hundreds of animals being sacrificed at one time, well, obviously, you're not going to get enough people to consume all of that food. Okay. 
Let's drop down to verse 29. When the Lord your God removes the nations from your way, as you advance to dispossess them. Now, let me stop there for a minute. We often will think that uh, these Israelites crossed over the Jordan and start killing everybody around them. Well, that is not exactly the way it worked. Uh, remember, people did not own land with a deed or a, a abstract... Oh, no, there's some other word that is used in some states instead of a deed. But nevertheless, they didn't have paperwork saying that you own this particular plot of land and it was all surveyed and so forth and so on. That didn't happen. Land was wherever you could get your flocks to eat. And naturally, people would move in and out and around and so forth uh, constantly for the purpose of making sure there was enough food for their animals. Their, you know, farms as we know it today did not exist at that time. Little gardens maybe, but not farms in the large uh, quantities of acreage that we know today. And so this moving in and out uh, and over lands that other uh, shepherds and other people were using to uh, pasture their flocks naturally would cause dissension and problems and so that is the kind of thing they're talking about. They make it a big deal here in writing and it sounds like they went in with uh, knives and forks and whatever else they could use to uh, eradicate the people. Well, that isn't exactly the way it worked. Uh, I'm going to repeat a little bit here from 29. When the Lord your God removes the nations from your way as you advance to dispossess them, uh, be on your guard. Otherwise, once you have been... Uh, once they have been wiped out before you and you have replaced them and are settled in their land, you will be lured into following them. Do not inquire regarding their gods. How did these nations worship their gods? I, too, will do the same. In other words, this is what really happened and the Deuteronomists are trying to get the people to see that this was wrong. Okay. You shall not thus worship the Lord your God, because they offered to their gods every abomination that the Lord detests, even burning their sons and daughters to their gods. And that was true. Okay. Every command that I enjoin on you, you shall be careful to observe neither adding to it or subtracting from it. Uh, this became quite a contention here, particularly later on uh, when there were various formal languages and the Jewish language was being translated into these foreign languages. Uh, there was the uh, 
the idea that they could be changed uh, in meaning as well as language, and this is the prohibition against all of that. Okay. In other words, they were not to change any of the wording of the laws. If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer who promises you a sign or wonder, urging you to follow other gods whom you have not known and to serve them, even though the signs or wonders he has foretold you comes to pass, pay no attention to the words of that prophet or that dreamer, for the Lord your God is testing you to learn whether you really love him with all your heart and with all your soul. Now, the word prophet and the idea of prophet was totally unknown to, Mo <coughs> to Moses. The first prophet we have is Elijah that didn't come to uh, any recognition until much, much later, uh, somewhere around the 9th century B.C. Uh, I forgot just exactly where. But if you read the first book of Kings, you will come across the story of Elijah and Elisha. They are the first prophets of the Bible. The word prophet was not used until that particular time. So obviously Moses could not have known anything about prophets, and there weren't any at the time of Moses. So it's for your Lord, your God, is testing you to learn whether you really love him with all your heart and with all your soul. The Lord your God shall you follow, and him shall you fear. His commandments uh, shall you observe, and his voice shall you heed, serving him and holding him fast to him alone. But that prophet, you see, these people are now talking about prophets in a sense that at the time of Ahab and Jezebel, if you read the story in the second book of Kings, Ahab and Jezebel started a school of prophets because they didn't like the prophets that God sent. Remember, because of the wayward life that these people were leading, God began to send prophets uh, to counteract all of this misunderstanding and this wrongful teaching that was going on and try to get the people to turn around and obey the teachings uh, of Moses or teachings of God that came through Moses. Uh, Jezebel Ahab's wife was not a Jew. Uh, she started a school for prophets and she was trying to get them to say and teach the people to do things contrary uh, to the laws uh, of Moses uh, and of God. Um, and so you had these so-called guild prophets, as they were called, versus the prophets that God sent. And the prophets came into being during the time of the monarchy, which was the time from David down to the Babylonian captivity, a time of almost 500 years. <coughs> 
the prophets died out after that um, because their usefulness was disregarded by the people in most cases. Uh, there was some degree that um, there was a few prophets like Malachi and um, a few others that existed for uh, beyond the Babylonian captivity for quite a while, uh, but they wrote very little. Elijah and Elisha did not leave any writings, so we call them the early prophets. There were 15 prophets in that five-year period. Uh, the three major prophets, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and then 12 lesser prophets. All of them left some form of writing, of instruction. But they died out, as I said, after the Babylonian captivity ended and the people returned to Israel primarily because they were ignored. Most of them were murdered by their own people. And that is why Jesus was often compared uh, to the prophets. Yes? Um, yes, I was sort of reading here a part of the commentary that I uh, felt might be of interest, but I've sort of explained that already. Okay. Let's drop down to chapter 13, verse 7. If your own full brother, or your son, or daughter, or your beloved wife, and of course that's in reference to uh, Jezebel, or your intimate friend entices you secretly to serve other gods, whom you and your fathers have not known, gods of any other nation, near at hand or far away, from one end of the earth to the other, do not yield to him or listen to him, nor look with pity upon him, despair or shield him, but kill him. Your hand shall be the first raised to slay him. The rest of the people shall join in with you. You shall stone him to death, because he sought to lead you astray from the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that place of slavery. And all Israel, hearing it, shall hear and never again do such evil as this in your midst. Well, that wasn't quite the way it was. If any of the cities which the Lord your God gives you to dwell in, you hear it said that certain scoundrels have sprung up among you and have led astray the inhabitants of their city to serve other gods whom you have not known. You must inquire carefully into the matter and investigate it thoroughly. If you find that it is true and an established fact that this abomination has been committed in your midst, you shall put the inhabitants of that city to the sword, dooming the city and all life that is in it, even its cattle to the sword, having uh, heaped up all its spoils in the middle of the square, you shall burn the city with all its spoil as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. Let it be a heap of ruins forever, never to be rebuilt. 
and you shall not retain anything that is tombed. Excuse me. That the blazing <coughs> that the blazing wrath of the Lord may die down, and he may show you mercy, and in his mercy you may multiply you. I'm sorry. And in his mercy for you may multiply you as he promised your fathers an oath because the you have heeded the voice. The voice of the Lord your God, keeping all his commandments, which I enjoin on you today, doing what is right in his sight. I'm going to skip on to a little, because we have a lot of repetition here that I don't think is necessary <coughs> to get into. 14 here. 14, chapter 14. You are children of the Lord your God. You shall not gash yourselves, nor shave the hair above your foreheads for the end. Now that doesn't sound right. <laughs> you are children of the Lord your God. You shall not gash yourself, or shave the hair above your foreheads for the dead. That's what it says here, but that doesn't, that doesn't quite make sense. Well, let's, let's go on. For you are a people sacred to the Lord your God, who has chosen you from all the nations on the face of the earth to be a people peculiarly <coughs> his own. <coughs> Excuse me. You shall not eat any abominable thing. These are the animals you may eat. <clears throat> the ox, the sheep, the goat, the red deer, the gazelle, the roe deer, the ibex and the addicts, the oryx and the mountain sheep. Any, man, any animal that have swifts you may eat, provided it is a cloven hoof and choose the cut. But you shall not eat any of the following that only choose the cud or only have cloven feet hoofs. The camel, the hare, the rock badger, which indeed uh, chew cud but do not have hoofs. <laughs> <coughs> Can you imagine going to the butcher and asking him if the meat had hoofs? <clears throat> Uh, excuse me, just a moment here. <laughs> this is about the third or fourth one I've taken today, but uh, every little bit helps. That is part of the digestive system of certain animals. Yeah. The flesh, um, 
of the various creatures that live in the water. Oh, by the way, you know, we all uh, are familiar with one of the Jewish laws of not eating pork. And that is because the pork was, the pig was always thought as a scavenger and digesting all kinds of things that would be harmful to human beings. And therefore that was the reason why the flesh of a pig was forbidden by Jewish people. And most of them don't agree to that uh, any longer. Like I think I've told you before, one of my friends, Jewish friends, very good neighbor friend, used to have a lot of parties. She always had ham. And I said one day to her, you know, I said, and I know you eat bacon besides the ham. She says, that's ham and bacon, that's not pork. <laughs> that shows you how they can twist things around, you know. Um, oh, well. Yeah, I think we all do that, though. in the garden. Okay. Of various creatures that live in the water, whatever has both fins and scales you may eat, but all those that lack either fins or scales you shall not eat. They are unclean for you. <clears throat> that applies to most shellfish. Then. You may eat all clean birds, but you shall not eat any of the following the eagle, the vulture, the osprey, the various kites and falcons, all of the vicious species of crows, the ostrich. Can you imagine eating an ostrich? I wouldn't want to cook one of those for Thanksgiving. <laughs> Can you imagine eating the drumstick? <laughs> The ostrich, the, the nightjar, the gull, the various species of hawks, the owl, the screech owl, the ibis, the desert owl, the buzzard, the stork, the various species of herons, of whoops, and so forth and so on. <clears throat> uh, you must not eat any animal that has died of itself, for you are a people sacred to the Lord. This is, again, these are hygiene rules and regulations that were important to the people at that time for hygiene purposes. They were not necessarily there for the purposes of worship, but over a period of time they assumed that place. Each year you shall tithe all of the produce that grows in the field you have owned. Then the place which the Lord your God chooses as the dwelling place of his name, and you shall eat in his presence your tithes or your grain, wine, and oil, as well as the firstlings of your herd and flock that you may learn. Always to fear the Lord your God. This was a way of worshiping the God, giving the first fruits of all of your efforts to the Lord. Now, it doesn't mean 10% necessarily, but over a period of time, that is what it 
was interpreted as. Um, if, however, the journey is too much for you, and you are not able to bring your tithes, um, because the place which the Lord your God chooses for the abode of his name is too far from you, consider how the Lord has blessed you. You may exchange the tithe for money, and with a purse of money in hand, go to the place which the Lord your God chooses, and you may then exchange the money for whatever you desire, uh, oxen or sheep or wine or whatever, <coughs> or strong drink or anything else that you would enjoy, and therefore before the Lord your God you shall partake of it and make merry with your family. But do not neglect the Levite who belongs... Didn't we cover this? All right. But do not neglect the Levite who belongs to your community, for he has no share in the heritage with you. And that's as I mentioned and explained before, the Levites were to live among all of the other tribes, and they did not have any land of their own. At the end of every third year, you shall bring out all of the tithes of your produce for that year and deposit them in the community stores. That the Levite, who has no share in the heritage with you, and also the alien, the orphan, and the widow, who belong to your community may come and eat their fill so that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake. Well, this is a way of helping the less fortunate. <clears throat> Chapter 15. At the end of every seven-year period, you shall have a relaxation of debt, which shall be observed as follows. Every creditor shall relax his claim on what he has loaned his neighbor. He must not press his neighbor, his kinsman, because a relaxation in honor of the Lord has been proclaimed. You may press a foreigner, but you shall not relax the claim on your kinsman for what is yours. Nay, more, say, since the Lord your God will bless you abundantly in the land, he will give you uh, to occupy as your heritage, and there should be no one uh, in need. Well, again, it's a way of providing for uh, the less fortunate. Um, this idea of forgiving the debt, though, did not go very well, and this law did not last very long. Yeah. But if you heed the voice of the Lord your God and carefully observe all of the commandments which I enjoin on you today, you shall lend to many nations and borrow from them. And you will, you know, this is where it is often thought that the Jewish people were only involved in money. Well, many of the families uh, did get heavily involved. The Rothschilds uh, are still known throughout Europe as developing the greatest form of banking. And there are a number of other incidents where Jewish people have become uh, known for great uh, builders of money in various forms. 
down. And there's nothing wrong with that in itself, because the Jewish people have been extremely generous in their charities, particularly uh, among themselves. Sometimes they will put limits as to whom they will lend and deal with, but nevertheless, you never find a Jewish person uh, in a bread line or a soup kitchen. Yeah. Uh, see. If one of your kinsmen in any community is in need of the land uh, which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor close your hand to him in need. Instead, you shall open your hand to him and freely lend him enough to meet his need. Be on guard lest entertaining the mean uh, thought that the seventh year, the year of relaxation, is near you grudge help to your needy kinsman and give him nothing else. Nothing. Else he will cry to the Lord against you and you will be held guilty. When you give to him, give free, freely and not with ill will. For the Lord your God will bless you for this in all of your works and undertakings. The needy will never be lacking in the land. And that is why I command you to open your hand to the poor and, need, and needy kinsmen in your country. Hebrew slaves. Hmm. If your kinsman, a Hebrew man or woman, sells himself to you, he is to serve for six years. But in the seventh year, you shall dismiss him from your service as a free man. When you do so, you shall not send him away empty-handed, but shall weigh him down with gifts from your flock and threshing floors and winepress. I can imagine just seeing that happen. Um, in proportion to the blessing the Lord your God has bestowed on you. For remember that you too once were slaves in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God ransomed you. That is why I am giving you this command today. If, however, <coughs> you tell, I'm sorry, if, however, he tells you that he, is, he does not wish to leave you because he is devoted to you and your household, since he fares well with you, you shall take an oath. Uh, what? and thrust it through his ear into the door, and he shall then be your slave forever. Can you imagine that? <laughs> Pin him to the door. Well, won't be much good as a slave even if he's pinned to the door, will he? <laughs> Again, you know, these are things that we really don't understand today. And I'm sure they don't exist today. Probably doesn't mean that. Right. Um, you must not be reluctant to let your slave go free since the service he has given you for six years. Was, uh, was worth twice a hired man's salary. 
And also the Lord your God will bless you in everything you do. You shall consecrate to the Lord your God all the male firstlings of your herd and of your flock. You shall not work the firstlings of your cattle, nor shear the firstlings of your flock. Year after year, you and your family shall eat them before the Lord your God in the place he chooses. If, however, a firstling is lame or blind or has any other serious defect, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God, but in your own communities you may eat it. Hmm. That doesn't quite make sense either, but... <clears throat> the, yeah. The unclean and the clean eating it alike, as you would a gazelle or a deer. Only you shall not partake of its blood, which must be poured out on the ground like water. I think we've had enough of that for today. <laughs> now see, if I had brought the agenda for today, it might have been a little easier uh, for all of us. But uh, I'm sure I won't forget that again. Any questions? Yes. Well, they had their own ways of doing it, but no, there was no universal calendar at this time. Did they do it like by the harvest? Every, another yeah, you know, they had a lunar calendar. Remember, they took that from the Egyptians. And so they did keep track of time and, and years, as this indicates, how and why. We don't know. So the third year and the seventh year were the same for everyone? Apparently, yeah. 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 Yes? How do we figure out which laws Well, I always say I don't like to follow any laws. I like to go by guidelines, and that's what I, the way I look at the laws of the church today. Look at them as guidelines rather than as laws. Uh, because if you run, if you live your life solely according to laws, eventually then you will be worshiping or disobeying the laws, not God. But if you have a good relationship with God, then all you need to have is the guidelines that help you stay within certain uh, perimeters. Uh, today, we have the catechism, and it will establish all of the rules and regulations uh, that make up our creed. And I think it is wise that each of you have a copy of the latest catechism of the Catholic Church to go through it occasionally and review what is there, what is right, and why it is. There's two versions of it. In fact, they're sitting on my desk also at home. Of course, that doesn't do any good here. But <clears throat> the catechism of the Catholic Church uh, the smaller version, 
is just the bullet points of what our beliefs are. There is another one much more extensive, and also costs $25, uh, that is called the Catholic, the Catechism of the, for Adults. Well, that, that's not quite the right. Catechism of the Catholic Church for Adults. In other words, it takes the smaller version and goes into a lot more explanation. I highly recommend that to be in every household because it allows you to look up various uh, beliefs that we have or various practices and it gives you an explanation and a little bit of history with it. Uh, yeah, the book itself is expensive, but it's quite extensive. I'll bring it in next week, assuming I don't forget it. Um, and go over it with you. Yes, sir, Dale? Uh, that the Catechism incorporates the Ten Commandments. Mm -hmm. And we are still obligated to um, examine our conscience against the Ten Commandments, though, correct? Oh, yes, by all means. That is one of the earliest forms of what I would call guidelines. Yeah. Um, the Ten Commandments. And again, as far as the Jewish people were concerned, that's all they had from the time of Moses all the way down to the time of uh, almost the Babylonian captivity. Because even though some of the writings that make up uh, the Old Testament came about after Solomon recommended that people start writing their histories. They weren't formed into the way we have them today uh, until around the end of the 5th, 6th century. Uh, but yes, we are obligated, and those, the Ten Commandments, as Gail said, is really the backbone of all faiths not just the Catholic faith, but all faiths. They are intended to be for all people of all nations uh, without exception. And most nations will have their own versions of the Ten Commandments. Uh, like I said, the Jewish people split the first one into two and they combined the last two, which still comes up to ten. Uh, but it's important that we know those. But I highly recommend uh, getting either the smaller version or the more extensive version, the Catechism of the Catholic Church for Adults uh, in the United States. I'll bring in both of them next week so that you can see what they are. But I think that's an important question for all of us. Any other questions? Yes, sir. Here's a book that... No, I'm being a little facetious. I'll warn you up ahead. Here's a book of a fellow who tried to do that. Live according to all of those 613 laws. It, it is a hilarious book. Serious in one way, but because it's almost impossible to live according to all of those laws, particularly today. Uh, 
and he goes through and tries to live one full year observing all of those, and it, it's uh, hilarious. Yes, sir. Yes, we do. Selectively is a very good word. Yes, yes. Uh, I think I've often mentioned this before. My wife used to tell the story. Uh, she lived in a uh, neighborhood that was uh, primarily uh, Jewish and Italian in New York. This is. And when she was a little girl, she would have the Jewish lady that lived across the street, and they were all good friends. Uh, and she would have uh, my wife or one of her sisters come over and light the furnace for her because she, you know, this is uh, wood stoves, of course, in those days, uh, light the, the stove for her so she could cook. But lighting a fire is against the Jewish law. That's one of the 60, lighting a fire, pardon me, on the Sabbath. Oh. On the Sabbath, I, yes, I, I forgot to mention that. Yeah, lighting a fire on the Sabbath, one of those. But the see, that's in the Talmud. The Talmud began with the same house of study and prayer in Babylon. But it was not written down until the second, let's see, began in the second century BC, AD after Christ, and was not really formalized until about the 4th century AD. So the Jewish people didn't have all of those 613 laws all during the time of this book. See, they had virtually nothing except their customs and the Ten Commandments, as Gail mentioned. Yeah. Just, just a minute, Justin. Well, now my grandmother, I want to iron a blouse. She says, no, put that iron board away. This is Jesus' day. Yeah. Well, that's right. So and, I listened to her. Yeah, in the early, when we were all young, most of us were all young, uh, we were at one time, weren't we? <laughs> yes, Justin. Was that the release? What, hap what happens when the, the release was not granted after seven years? Well, then the, the Jewish person uh, was in wrong. Yeah, he was wrong. And, you know, he might be persecuted by his own people. Okay. Yeah. So he, will be, he or she would be penalized for that? Yes, in some way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Joe? Didn't Muslims go by the Ten Commandments? Uh, I doubt it. I doubt it. Yeah. You know, thou shalt not, thou shall not cure, will kill. Is one of those Ten Commandments, you know. Talking about the Muslims, they don't have baptism, right? No. Baptism. Baptism of children, infants. No. How do how are the children baptized? They're not baptized. No, they don't believe in a baptism like we do. Yeah. Neither do the Jewish people. How would the Lord uh, judge them? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I've never, I've never asked him about that 
particular question. Yeah. But you see, they go through the bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah for the ladies. And that is their initiation into a formal adult Judaism. All right, and that's around the age 12 or 13. Bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Any other questions? Well, I enjoy your questions. I can't always give you the answer you want, but uh, I enjoy trying. And so uh, I think we've come pretty much to the end of the, our lesson. So let's end with a prayer. Go oh, away. Excuse me. Oh, yes. Let's take the next. <coughs> Let me think. 12, 16 through 20. Uh, I could be off one there, but 16 through 20 will be the chapters that we will pick up next week. Uh, let's end with a prayer. Lord, we offer these feeble, feeble uh, efforts towards praising you and thanking you. We ask that you help us to examine our own conscience, examine our lifestyle, examine what we believe and what we may lack in believing. Help us then to get back on the right track to loving you and serving you as faithfully as we can in your way of thinking. For it is your your way that you have designed for each of us. We each have a part to play in your plan of salvation. Help us then to find out what it is in accordance with your most holy will. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. Amen.